The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, which is the eighth episode in our Civil Engineering Entrepreneur Series, I will be talking with Kevin Riggs, PE, President and CEO at Cold Design Group, Inc., about growing a civil engineering firm and developing your team. And Kevin has a very interesting story of how he went from an employee to an owner in a civil engineering firm in 60 days. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the Civil Engineering Podcast. Now, before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So please support them. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this series, Big Time. Big Time is the industry-leading PSA software providing time tracking, billing, and project management for engineering firms with the goal of getting your business back to business. You can learn more about Big Time's PSA solution at bigtime.net. Big Time would also like to provide this tip to listeners about remote management. Individualized management is popular for many even in the office, but it's critical for managing remote employees. Everyone is in their own space, and with that comes individual needs and responses to work. Set aside time to listen to each team member's needs and how they might have changed while being remote, and collaborate on creating a plan that keeps them on track and accountable for their contributions to the team's success. I also want to mention that if your firm is looking for training related to core skills such as people management skills, project management skills, or seller-doer or business development training, we have that at the Engineering Management Institute. Simply visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, click on the training tab, and you will see our popular Engineering Management Accelerator series. Again, people management skills, project management skills, and seller-doer or business development skills. These are the skills that help your firm grow And we provide this training in a way that really allows them to transfer these skills back to the job. It's not a training where they come, get a lot of information, and then go back to being overwhelmed by their projects. No, we give them the training little by little in spaced repetition, and we challenge them to use the skills on the job during billable activities. Again, you can check it out at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on the training tab or give us a call at 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Now let's dive into our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Kevin Riggs. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest to the podcast today, Kevin Riggs. Kevin is the president and CEO of Cold Design Group, Inc. Kevin, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate being here. So, Kevin, you've had a, an interesting career as an entrepreneur, as an engineer. You've gotten involved in the, in the world of cannabis in, in recent years. Take us through a little bit about your engineering career, just to give our listeners an intro to your background with regard to engineering, a little bit about your career and, and how you ended up with coal. You know, as with anything, the older you get, the longer that journey kind of seems. So the, it takes me a little longer now to spill that one out than it used to, uh, or than I'd like to be able to admit. But I knew pretty much, I'm going to say probably when I was in the sixth grade, fifth grade, I realized I wanted to do something scientific. It sounds crazy now to look back on that. I was actually, prior to this, 
conversation, kind of reflecting on that a little bit this morning in my morning meditation. And, and it dawned on me that, you know, I remember fifth and sixth grade wanting to be either a microbiologist, marine biologist, or an architect. And for those of us my age that remember Seinfeld, there's a little irony to that with some of the jokes that used to go around Seinfeld as it relates to Art Vandelay and his architectural firm. But that was kind of uh, when I knew going backwards, I remember that some shape or form I was going to end up in some form of science. Didn't know what that would be, didn't know what it would look like. So I kind of followed that journey a little bit. You're a kid and you do a little bit well in math and you have a little aptitude and a little interest. And the next thing you know, they bump you up to the, the higher classes going through middle school and, and high school. And then uh, I was 100% convinced I was going to be a rock and roll star or a football player before I was going to be an engineer. Fortunately, talent at both levels uh, metered me back to being an engineer. So I was fortunate to be able to go to college on a football scholarship at the University of Missouri Rolla, which is now Missouri Science and Technology, and uh, gain a degree in uh, mechanical engineering, actually, and was able to meet some really wonderful people, went to a great school that was focused primarily on engineering, and put me in a situation where I was surrounded by a lot of other people that lifted me up from uh, not just an academic standpoint, but from a drive and a desire standpoint. So from a competitive standpoint, whether it was being in music or being in sports, I've always taken that to the classroom. And, and I still consider myself to live in a classroom uh, every single day and everything I do. And I think if you take that approach, you continue educating yourself. So graduated in, in uh, the early 90s, degree in mechanical engineering, had worked as an intern at a civil firm. And so I always joke about the fact that as a mechanical engineer, I kind of self-taught and learned how to become a civil engineer, got my years experience, passed my PE, and, and now I'm licensed in about 44, 45 states as a civil engineer. That path from an educational standpoint paralleled a little bit, if you will, with my desire and my drive to be uh, an entrepreneur or to be the boss or to, you know, however you want to term it. I remember as far back as being a little kid, my lifelong best friend and I used to both tell a joke about the fact that we wanted to own businesses, right? We realized at that time the most important part of owning a business was having coffee. So we taught ourselves... <laughs> at age four and six years old, how to make coffee, albeit lousy, because I think all we did was pour grounds into hot water and stir it up and think we had it figured out. But the irony of it is now, 30 years later, uh, 20 years owning my own firm and starting a couple other businesses, I still find myself making the coffee when I come in. So for those people out there wondering what skill set it takes and how do I learn how to become an entrepreneur, I, I've always found making coffee to be the best advice I can give. So Kevin, take us through that period where you're working as an engineer, as a civil engineer. I worked with a lot of mechanical engineers that took a similar path to you, you know, that found their way into civil because there's obviously a lot of crossover, a lot of similarities there. You're working as an engineer, you have an entrepreneurial desire, and I think it was in 2004 that you acquired Cole and Associates at the time. Talk about leading up to that acquisition. You know, what were you thinking? What kind of drove you towards that? How did that whole thing happen? Looking backwards now, I can give you the exact plan, but I can go backwards and tell you that I had no idea what the plan was, right? Steve Jobs uh, had a quote, I'm going to paraphrase it, that you can only connect the dots when you look backwards, right? So looking forwards from that point, uh, I'm going to project myself back to age 
25, 26, 27, somewhere in there, had had my PE, had been working, was at my second career spot. Things were going well, accelerating. But as with so many other people, I was working at a smaller uh, family-owned civil engineering firm, a very good one, talented, doing work all over the country. But so many of our civil engineering companies are fall into this mode, right? The under 20 or under 25 kind of size. And it's very manageable for that one person who is the boss, who is the owner, to be there and, and handle things and be there on a day-to-day basis. Well, for me, things had started happening in my life. I had I, My daughter had been born. I had uh, chosen to get involved in politics. So I was elected city council president of the town that I was living in at the time, just outside of St. Louis, a suburb, St. Charles, Missouri. Through that, had begun to experience the size of the world you know, within the engineering world. And one thing led to another and, and kind of kept my nose to the grindstone. I've always gone back and looked at it. And I realized that by the time I was probably 29 years old, I had 20 years experience in this industry because I was working 80 to 100 hours a week through my 20s. And I did it because I love it. And I still love it. I'm a junkie for deals and land development and infrastructure and solving problems. And that's actually one of our company mottos is problem solved, right? And it's just so simple, but it's really all we do is, you know, solve these challenges that come in front of us. It's one of the greatest things to me about being an engineer. And that fueled kind of this, hey, I think I can do something more than just not to demean uh, being a project manager, because it's a critical part of our industry. But uh, for the point of this discussion, as it relates to entrepreneurship, I wanted to be able to go and, and share my vision of what a firm and what the industry could look like. And so I was interestingly enough at about that period of time was recruited and you know those of us on this side of the industry uh kind of look at recruiter as a four-letter word now because it's uh they're pretty busy and pretty active so uh we're doing a lot and i hope we get to that later to try to ensure that there's no offer too tall or too big to take you away from a place that you really enjoy working in my 30s early 30s had begun this progression of uh, being involved in government and learning the planning and zoning side of things, learning the public work side from the customer and client side, and then was recruited to Cole to come over with the intent and the opportunity to be able to uh, roll into you know the president role someday or that single owner. And it was a 15 to, it was probably in that range, 15 to 20 people, something like that. And uh, what occurred during that first 12 months there was something that I could never have conceived or dreamt of, but I had a lot of people who uh, I had apparently built up a lot of respect, a lot of knowledge base with, and several of them decided to, you know, kind of follow me, join me, and both uh, staff members and clients. And over a very short period of time, the firm grew so fast I had to essentially go into the gentleman who owned it at the time, Mel Cole, who was the founder, and say, look, if we're going to make this deal happen, it's got to happen now because I'm not going to be able to afford it if we keep growing like this. And I think I'm a large part of it. Certainly the team was great. And so he kind of looked at me, smiled and wrote a number down, slid it across the desk, just like you hear those kind of stories that are you know, kind of crazy, the, these deals where someone writes a number down and slides it across the desk. But I grabbed it, said, I need tomorrow off. I think that was a Thursday going into a Friday, ran around, talked to anybody and everybody I'd ever known that owned a business or worked at a business where they knew the owner and asked them how to do this, right? And fortunately had developed a relationship with a few banking friends and a few other customers and clients. And they were all extremely supportive of this and came back in Monday and said, I can do this. Let's close in 60 days. And 
he about fell out of his chair. He was young at the time. He was in his mid fifties, but he was ready. You know, he'd been at it for 30 plus years and he was ready to, to move on. So the story lives on from there, I guess. And actually started there uh, April 1st is my uh, first day of hire. So April Fool's Day, the irony of that does not go unnoticed. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, how I went from kind of being a project freak. I mean, I was addicted to those deals and chasing them down. And I would get on an airplane anytime, any place, anywhere to be able to go make these deals happen and, and translate that into ownership. Really appreciate that story. I'm reading a book right now called The 80-20 Individual by Richard Koch. And he talks about creating so much value as an employee of a company that you open yourself up to opportunities, which sounds exactly like your situation in that you were really growing the company. And so there was an opportunity for you to get ownership in it kind of before you grew it. So it was nice that you recognized that before you grew it too much and said, oh, wow, now I got to try to buy into something that I just built that's going to cost me. So that's really great. And the other angle of that that I really like is that this series focused around talking to entrepreneurs in the civil engineering industry. A lot of times people think that the path to owning a civil engineering firm is just starting it on your own. And, and obviously that doesn't always have to be the case. I mean, there's plenty of ways to gain ownership in a company, buy into a company. I mean, there's multiple different ways. And you just heard Kevin walk you through one of them. And really it comes down to, like we talk about a lot on this podcast, is relationships. And it sounds like, you know, you had relationships, you built up respect, and people wanted to follow you to the company, helping to grow that company, which is awesome. So it's really great to hear those things. So let's talk a little bit more now about kind of growing a successful firm in the engineering world. Talk about your philosophy as a leader of a company in terms of growth, some of like your high level, or like big picture thoughts on growing a company. How do you think through that? First of all, there's no magic recipe. There is no wrong way. There is no 100% right way, right? There is the way that is right for you and your firm and your partner staff at that time. And what's right today may not be right tomorrow. I mean, we've learned a lot in the past. Well, I've learned a lot in the past 18, 20 years, but I can tell you in the last 24 months, I've learned even more. I would tell you that for me, just philosophically, you know, I mentioned earlier that treating your life as a classroom has served me well. I hit every one of the cliches you want to hit, right? I try to make sure we got the right people in the seat on the bus. I try to make sure I'm the dumbest one in the room. And I try to make sure I'm always around people who make me better. And many days I'm successful at both of those things. And a lot of people around you will tell you that. I think the more you can realize how it takes a team to be able to implement what you believe your philosophy to be, because it's really easy to sit here right now and talk and say, oh, I, we're going to be this and we're going to be the greatest engineers and our quality is better than anyone else's. And we're going to be do all these things that everybody complains about in our industry. We're not going to be like that. That's really good to have that. You have to start with that intent and it has to start from inside, you know, the leadership of the firm, but it can't stay there, right? It has to permeate. It has to come from every single person, whether there are summer associates that are working for us and getting their experience in the various different regions across the country, or there are people who have been with us for 25 years. We've got several employees with more than 20 years experience that outdated me at the firm, right? So they're still great friends and great leaders within our firm, but they have to show every day what that leadership looks like and what that vision is going to be. And I always like to say, you know, I mentioned it earlier, again, our, our tagline, if you will, our motto is problem solved, period. And really, you can throw that on just about anything that comes up to any of our people or myself on any given day and lay it out there. 
and what you're educating yourself on is the process you go through, the, the steps that you take to address a problem. And those are not civil engineering specific. We all, by the time you reach the point that you are in leadership in a civil engineering firm, you know how to solve a problem when a manhole is labeled wrong or when a storm sewer is going in the wrong direction, God forbid, or you've got a property line issue or you've got on and on and on and on, right? The architect laid out the parking lot and we just copied it and didn't go through and correct it, right? And all these things. We've been through these things and these type of things. We know how to solve this because we learn how to learn in college. And when we're out of college, we learn how to learn civil engineering once we get on the job. But we really don't ever learn how to be leaders. Those skill sets are from observing the world around you, right? So if all you do is focus on being a civil engineering leader, you're just looking at other civil engineers as to how to be a leader. And I think that at that particular time, that's great. I know some wonderful civil engineers who are extremely great leaders. They're not just great leaders because they looked at civil engineers. You have to look at everybody. You have to look at tech giants. You have to look at great grandparents. You have to look at people in your life and in your neighborhood who are truly making a difference. And those people are leaders, right? So you could be a leader by picking up a dollar that somebody drops at a gas station, doesn't realize it, and you hand it to them. That's the beginning of what it takes to be a leader. That's the beginning of what you do when the lights aren't on you is as important as when the lights are on you. As a leader, when you're around technical people, you just learn the right skills, I believe, in cultivating your humans. And that's a term I use a lot. In many cases, in many of the different businesses that I'm involved in, there's products, there's people, there's always people. And the people we need to grow and we need to cultivate. And so that is our number one goal. And that is our number one mission to continue to hire the best of the best and then give them all the room to make a mistake. Because if you give them enough room in their job to make a mistake and they're comfortable that they can push themselves far enough to make a mistake, they'll also have enough room to be successful. Within that space, people who fit our mold and fit our vibe, if you will, will be successful in that. And that's not for everyone. Every firm, every manager, every company is a little bit different. Ours is a very open, very large mindset from here's your job. We're going to give you all the tools and support you need to be able to be the best you you can be. But we're going to get out of your way so that you can grow and expand yourself into the biggest and best that you can possibly be. I really like that philosophy. And when you hear a lot of people use the word culture, and I think that what culture is, to some of your words, is a mindset and its habits and routines that you need to build up. And people are going to have to do that with your guidance. But in some ways, you're going to kind of want to tell them, here's what we want to accomplish. I'm not going to give you every single step along the way because you know people like to sometimes figure out some of the steps on their own. They kind of have to, but they know that you're there behind them supporting that that progress. So I really like the idea of challenging people, giving them responsibility, but not necessarily standing over their shoulder all the time, which I think is what happens often to people. Well, the term culture, Anthony, so many times gets used. It just becomes a keyword or a, some kind of catchphrase that people are trying to throw out there to say, our HR group is doing this. And now, so evolve forward fast from you know, a 15 to 20 person firm to now us near a hundred and various different sizes in between, all of these things become magnified, right? And now I can't be that guy who does every single one of these things, right? So I have to trust that I have groups within the organization who represent this philosophy 
and execute this kind of philosophy. So culture has two words with it that as leaders, we truly have to adopt and swallow, right? And we have to swallow it and smile. Culture comes with cultivate. I mentioned that one. It also comes with call. So this is the part as leaders that we don't like to admit because as engineers, typically, we don't like to admit when we're wrong ever. We're scientists. Scientists love, and we're seeing it right now in in, uh, some of our current events going on, scientists will always be able to prove the facts and live with the facts. Unfortunately, our world is never about the facts. Our world is about reality. And so one of the biggest things we don't do as leaders is recognize, hey, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe this person I hired is not the right person. And maybe we do need to call. Jack Welch's theory of every year I think it was, you know, remove your bottom 10%. I don't adhere to that. I think that creates a little bit too much of a corporate warrior mentality. But there is something to recognizing that you've got the wrong person doing the wrong job. And that is not always that individual's problem or their fault for not being able to succeed in that. That more often than not is the leadership's problem by not recognizing either they've asked someone to come work at a firm they're not going to fit in, or they're asking someone to do tasks right now that don't fit their skill set. You mentioned the term culture. To me, call and cultivate and culture are the three C's that make the biggest difference. What is the importance of how you view the services that you provide as a firm? I'm old school when it comes to this. So I'm the generation 53 years old. I started working in this industry when uh, the small firm that I interned with threw a box of floppies on my desk and said, hey, this is something called CAD. Can you load it on to our 286, I think it was? I don't even know the memory we had in that thing at the time on five and a quarter floppies, not three and a halfs even, right? So everybody else in the firm was rear ends and elbows on drafting tables, vellum, mylars, all that kind of stuff. Within a very short period of time through the mid 80s to the late 80s, that all went away very, very quickly. But there was a mentality hangover during that period of time. I hate to use these terms. because I don't mean to be disrespectful to our past, but it was a little rougher mentality. There were ashtrays on the drafting boards in the 80s where the drafters and the engineers smoked in the office while they were working, right? And there was always this thing, if you drop an ash on your mylar and you burn a hole through it, they had it all figured out how to patch those things, right? So culturally, drastically different. And that management skill has really just over the past 10 years purged itself from our industry. We've seen most of those people retire. And so the next generation, we've been born with that. And then now we're raising people, if you will, through this same family kind of mentality. Generationally, we're bringing up young people in this culture and they don't want that at all. I don't think our generation wants that. So our approach to looking at what we provide from a service line standpoint is I don't want to do anything unless we can be the best we possibly can be at it. And unless we can provide true value to a customer or client. That extends beyond that, tying back to what I said before, giving your people, giving your employees and your partners within your work zone enough space to be successful. That's them coming up with ideas and saying, hey, guys, I have this crazy idea. I think there's a gap over here in whatever it may be, accessibility, uh, surveying, you know, landscape architecture, CAD, GIS, whatever it is. There's room here for us to fill a void. Let's try this. And I, to a fault, 
have pretty much tried just about anything that any of our people have brought forward, primarily to be able to prove to them and incite them into bringing more ideas forward. Certainly, we won't go too far down a rabbit hole before it's like, hey, this isn't going to work out. But more often than not, the people who bring you good ideas and get behind it, if they own it, they're going to make it successful. And they will spill that energy across the entire firm. That's where we look at that philosophically. From a technical standpoint, like I said, I'm a land development junkie. So all things industrial, commercial, and residential land development make me happy. And and I expect perfection, although I realize that we're never going to be perfect because we're humans. If you don't start off that way and expect it, you're never going to see it. Great. I really like the idea of, again, kind of a little bit like what you talked about in the beginning is giving people an opportunity, give them an opportunity to come up with ideas, to try different things, to innovate, because without that, you kind of follow the same path all the time. And in the world we live in, we, we know we can't follow the same path. We have to adapt. Like you said, if we've learned anything in the last 24 months is that we need to adapt always and often. And I think by getting different ideas from people, and, and quite frankly, If I'm an engineer working for a company and I have the opportunity to bring ideas to the table, try different things, be innovative, I mean, of course, that's where I want to work. My own personal philosophy is I don't want to go somewhere where, like I said earlier, where I'm told to do something a certain way and I'm doing that kind of over and over and over. And so I think that that's a great atmosphere to kind of create for people. And you said earlier, Kevin, that you do focus on putting people in the right positions, which we know is a really important aspect in any business. And talk a little bit about maybe how you do that, but also how once they're in those positions, you, I don't want to say measure them, but they have a like outlook on what success means to them in those positions. Because that's a whole important part of that process. That's a really great question. And I would tell you, I think it's a constant evolution. If you're going to grow people, once you get them in the right position, you need to ensure that that position grows with them. I believe they're going to get stagnant. And again, it's the engineering world, so we all have different personalities. There are some people who are very happy in their position, and that's what they'll be for their entire career, and they're extremely happy at it, and they're very productive and very good at it. You know, kind of use the uh, prototypical NASA engineer model, right, where it's like, hey, this is where you are. Go be the best you can be in this. We're also mixed that, though, with, hey, this is just the next step of my career, right? And I love the recent hires out of college coming to us with, what is my career path? I cautiously, I want to tell them, I'm like, well, right now you haven't left the dugout. Your name has just been called into the on-deck circle, and we're not sure whether we're going to pinch hit for you or not yet. When you start worrying about your career path and how you're getting in the Hall of Fame, just realize where you're at in it. And then give this your best, figure out your walk-up song, whatever you want to do. How do you get ready at this point to make yourself a rock star? And that's how you can prepare yourself for these kind of things in career path. But I think as you look at civil engineering, and I think this is one of the places where as an industry and where leaders within the industry, we really have room to grow is there's a lot of great companies out there in our industry who help with metrics. I won't name of them, any of them, but we all know them. There's about a handful, half a dozen of them or so that do a really good job of continuing education, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a leadership standpoint, transition standpoint, all these kind of things. And they're really good at what they do. But one of the things that they do is they give us a lot of metrics. And you reach a point where your metrics only represent your technical side of things. 
So how do you give someone a score on how they did when on a project that lost a little bit of money when in reality that a bad project manager would have lost a lot of money on it? So how do you metric somebody just based on the dollar's profit, right? Did you save the firm? Were we in trouble on this one? Because the same could be said true. A project that, let's say, has a 20% uh, profit margin on it by the time it gets completed with a less than high performing project manager could have maybe done 30% with a great performing project manager. So somewhere in there, I believe we and, and, and us as a management team at Cole, we are very cautious to get too hard on the metrics and saying A, B, and C and column one, two, and three, and add all those up and look, you get a raise or look, you don't get a raise, right? So there's got to be room in there for something not metriced to be able to measure success within that position of that particular employee. If my clients want to keep using you and request you, if my managers want to keep having you as their project engineer, if the project engineers want to make sure that you're the designer or you're the LA working on the project, that is going to be a huge part of your evaluation as to whether you're in the right spot or not. That requires nimbleness on the stance of a, of a manager. So I've kind of been talking a little bit about engineers in those roles, but we've still got engineers in management roles trying to make these one-on-one decisions. And now I've blown their mind because they don't have a checklist, right? We're engineers. We want this, right? Give me this. I'll check every single one of these boxes off and bingo, I'm done. Well, no, you're not. There's this thing over here that doesn't have a number assigned to it. It doesn't have a series of check boxes. And yet I've got to make a decision based on my opinion over your career. And so now this becomes very difficult and engineers are so used to being black and white and getting the right answer that they don't leave room a lot of times to be able to support that soft side, if you will. Attitude, all those things play a whole lot more into it than because that's a reflection of your culture. Everything I described in the first few minutes of this discussion have bearing, right? Each one of these steps you go through in a firm has to connect with the other one. If there's any disconnect, then that's a failure in the chain. You know, that weak link in the chain will break the chain. I think that's really important because I do think that the default measurement, of course, is always going to be in a lot of firms is metrics. And to your point, Somebody could have a project that yielded 20% profit, but in all reality, very easily could have been 30 or 40, right? If they were an effective project manager. I tell civil engineers all the time that civil engineering is more about people than projects because without the people, there are no projects. Without the people working together, there are no projects. So I really like the idea of feedback from people around those managers to understand you know, the kind of work that they're doing, because that really does truly, in my opinion, speak to the type of leader that they are. You know, Leaders tend to be able to get people together moving towards a certain goal. And your approach in terms of measuring their success seems to be in line with that, as opposed to just focusing on the bottom line of a project, which isn't always a good indicator. And really, your point about the checklist is so true. I mean, I always use the quote with people from Peter Drucker, being efficient or being effective is doing things right. Being effective is doing the right things, right? We like to check a lot of things off all day, but if they're not impactful, if they're not focused in the right areas, then then you're really not doing the right thing. So I agree with you on the checklist component of it. We talked a lot about putting people in the right seats. We talked about kind of measuring them, not just around metrics. And I just want to ask you about applying those types of principles to your clients, because I know that that's something that you're interested in and you talk about. Talk a little bit about that, shifting to that perspective there. I'm a very graphical thinker, right? I think that's part of being an engineer. So if what it takes to run a successful firm is everything inside this circle, 
everything we've talked about is a portion of that circle because you can't complete the loop without the customers, the clients, and the relationships you have to be able to be successful for them. Whether it's uh, relationships with agencies and state agencies, local municipalities, those relationships you have that you've already known these people, you can pick up the phone and call them. Or what we run into more often because we're doing so much work all over the country is the philosophy behind how you address these reviewers and these agencies is I want our goal with as a firm, everybody who submits a set of plans to a reviewer, their goal should be to make that reviewer's job as easy as possible. And we verbalize that. When we go into a community we haven't worked in, and we've got hundreds and hundreds of projects right now in communities across the country that are one-offs or multiples that we're doing in those communities, for the first time we walk in and we ask all those questions and develop that level of trust, right? So no different than what I've described on how we approach what we want the people who work with us on our team within the firm, the people that we work with outside the term at the, or outside the team within the agencies, that's part of our circle, whether we like it or not. So having that puts us in a situation, I believe, where we don't create an antagonistic relationship with the reviewers, which is easy to do when you've done this long enough and somebody on the other side who's seemingly done this for far less time tells you that you're wrong. This goes back to engineers not liking to be told they're wrong. It's a practice. You have to fill that philosophy and you have to question yourself to get through that. Now forward that to the people who are fueling this entire thing, which are our customers, and our clients. And it's the same approach, right? We have to listen. We have to sit down. We have to ensure that we're working with the right person within that client's firm, because not everybody at every development firm or every municipality or every state agency is going to mesh with everybody within our firm. So finding those connections. And again, you're 100% right on this, Anthony. None of this exists without the human side and cultivating humans is the most important thing we do. And that's not just the employees of the firm, that is the customers. And in many cases, we've got multi-decade clients within this firm that when they hire some young people out of school or people come over and our clients will say, hey, will you kind of show them how we do what we do? And you develop that rapport and that trust. And so that same philosophy has to come forward. And again, don't believe it's unique to civil engineering. This should be how you evaluate any business at any given time is to be able to to take that approach to the humans. That doesn't always mean give them everything they want, employees or clients. At some point, you need to be willing to put your foot down and say, hey, enough's enough. We fixed these last two problems because we didn't want to stir anything up. They weren't our problem. You know, go talk to your contractor next time. You have to be willing to have enough uh, respect and dignity for yourself and your team to not go down that rabbit hole. But when you center yourself around the best clients and customers you possibly can, both from a relationship standpoint and clearly from a pay standpoint, I mean, at the end of the day, we all work to make money. And I believe everything I've described puts us in a best position to, to maximize that. That's where success comes from. And that's the extended version, right? That's filling that entire circle of success, if you will. Here at EMI, we take the same approach with our clients. If we're doing corporate training for them, we might be working with them for five years and then they might reach out to us and say, hey, we know you don't have this exact program, but do you think you could build it for us? Because we really like the way you train, you know, our operations, you know, our people. To your point, that's why, you know, building really good client relationships 
is really key to sustaining a business and growing a business and scaling a business, quite frankly, because they taught me when I struggled in the beginning of doing business development as a civil engineer. I remember my boss told me that best, the easiest clients to get are the ones you already have, right? Getting more work, getting repeat work. And so I always kind of took that to heart and continue to think about that here at EMI. All right, Kevin, one last question in this segment before we jump into the final hot seat segment. Just last kind of parting advice for civil engineering firm owners out there, just went through COVID, trying to think at a high level right now in terms of some of the keys or a big key that you see going forward in today's economy, today's world as an owner, what's maybe the top thing that they really need to think about going forward in your opinion? Well, when my senior executive team uh, sees this, this one's fresh off the press, right? So they've been reminding me, if you will, and I'm blessed. We've got an amazing group of senior executives that I trust at the highest level to do all the right things. And sometimes that means telling me I need to come in a different direction or I need to be open emotionally, spiritually, and uh, mentally to be able to approach these things. So this right now coming back to work is our current chaos, if you will. And I would suggest to anybody that do not get into ownership of any company in any industry if you do not choose to love and relish the moment of chaos. Because chaos is kind of like that opening of a board game where everything gets thrown on the table at once, which means everything is a possibility during chaos. Now, failure is a possibility during chaos, but the only reason you can have success during chaos is because failure is an option. When failure is not an option, your success is going to be limited as well. In this particular period of time, we've thrown a lot of dice on the table and bringing people back into a workspace is a current question and a current debate, if you will. I mentioned where I started in the industry and the concept of me being able to uh, take time off because my dog was sick in 1989 was not generate the same response as it does today, right? And trust me, I'm an ex-board member in the St. Louis Zoo and a rescuer. I like to side when people care enough about their pets to go home. But I'm telling you, those type of things moving forward and understanding this work from home mentality where it's like, well, wait a minute, I can't see them. And moving past that, I can't see them to wait a minute, just because this is a part of the industry moving towards that. Is this really best for them and their career, right? At what point in your career is it best to be autonomous and working from home? And when is it best in your career to be able to have somebody looking over your shoulder and ensuring that you're learning stuff the way you need to? I'll fully admit we don't have that answer nailed down. And so this is going to be a little bit of a living laboratory for us within our industry for a period of time. We were very blessed. We had a very good, successful year in 2020. We had a lot of things fall into place for us. We actually hired and grew during 2020. We're hiring and growing during 2021. And part of that was all of a sudden, one day I was traveling, going, I think I was in our St. Louis or our Dallas office, came to Phoenix. And the next day, the whole world went home. Fortunately, we have some technology that allowed us to do that, but we had to flip a switch like everyone else did in a very short period of time. We were a great communicating firm before we went into COVID. We went 100% from home working remote thanks to Teams and Zoom and some other things. We communicated exceptionally through that and have now integrated Teams within our culture. But now that we're in this transition period where we've got a lot of people who want to come back, We have some people who don't want to come back. We have some people who want to end up in the middle. 
I think now we're, we're seeing uh, the connection things begin to kind of bifurcate a little bit and not to the point where it's mission critical, but I think it could be where you have people working remote, people working in the office and the hybrids, so to speak, to take a scientific or a, a sci-fi approach to it. And there begins to become an identity within each of those three groups. And those identities can create boundaries and walls. And so my concern is keeping all of them inside this circle and not creating three separate circles that are connected by a line. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it clear enough, but that integration to take this new world, so to speak, and fit it within a world that all of us are comfortable is going to deliver the product to the end client the way we know we can and the way we know we want to is by far and away the biggest challenge in the engineering industry right now, at least from our standpoint. We were at a point pre-COVID, everyone was kind of in offices working together, working physically in teams. Then a week later, everyone's on Microsoft Teams and Zoom and working virtually 100%. And now we're going back to, we don't know exactly what yet, some combination of the two, like you said, where they'll be remote, they'll be People in the office, they'll be hybrid. And we need to figure out, going back to the word we've been using, culture and cultivation of how to continue to do all of that with these different modalities, so to speak, that's happening. And I really, really like your advice around chaos. You made me think of the movie Jumanji, where you know they're all playing a, an innocent board game and then they all end up in a chaotic jungle, which to me, from being a business owner, is very real and that you know from day to day you don't know what you're going to deal with and you need to be open to that like you said and almost expecting it and not be thrown by it so that you can kind of stay focused yourself and just see it like you said as another problem that has to be solved and that's kind of just part of your job on a daily basis so we're going to take a quick break come back with kevin and finish up with a couple last questions we'll put them on the civil engineering hot seat stick around civil engineering podcast civil engineering podcast All right, we're back with Kevin Riggs, president and CEO of Cold Design Group, Inc. All right, Kevin, you gave us some great info and advice for those who want to become civil engineering firm owners, but now we're going to talk a little bit more about your career side, and we're going to put you on the civil engineering hot seat. Ready? Right on. First question, are there any specific rituals that you practice daily? For example, a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine, or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? Yeah, I meditate every morning. I started the habit myself a couple of years ago at the recommendation of someone in your seat right now. I was doing this hot seat segment and she mentioned that she did the daily meditation. She got me going on it, which has been great. That's something you do first thing every day? or Every single day I check my intentions and I, I know where I want to end up. I don't always know how we're going to get there, but as the day unfolds or as the weeks or months or whatever, that intention evolves and those steps to get there evolve. And it's a, I recommend that for anyone willing to grow internally to be able to do that. It's a difficult thing to start to do because of the lack of attention span, the fast racing minds that we all deal with today. Someone that wants to just take the first step, what would you recommend? What's the first way to get involved with meditation? There are some great instructors out there, and these are really good business type people too. So Bob Proctor and Joe Dispenza, I would recommend those guys all day long. There are a couple of books out there, and Anthony, I'll forward a list on to you. Some of the ones that I like, and you can put that up when you get them. They're baby steps. It's like anything else, man. The first time that you can actually sit and admit that there's a world out there that you may not know and you didn't learn in a textbook 
in your 300 level civil engineering classes, the quicker you're going to be better at everything you do, I believe. The concept of the, the movie, The Secret, and all those kind of things out there where the common thread throughout so many successful people is your intentions and your actions and your thoughts and meditation tends to be a really good glue to keep all those things together. And I'll get the list of books from Kevin and we'll put them up on the show notes for this episode. And just, I'll just share some of my own story real quick. I've been using an app called the Waking Up app by Sam Harris, which I really, really like. It was actually recommended to me by this uh, civil engineer that I had on the podcast previously. It got me going an intro course and I've been able to stick with it for a couple of years now every morning. And, And to Kevin's point, it's definitely a game changer in terms of slowing your brain down a little bit, allowing you to think about different things and process things differently. And I do highly recommend it if you're able to you know, give it a shot. I've, I've talked to a lot of engineering leaders actually that have found it to be helpful. All right, Kevin, next question. What is one book that you might recommend to an engineer regularly or just a book in general that you, you, know, you look back in your career and say, man, that was that one book that really made it was kind of a game changer for me. And I know you might have multiple, but what's maybe one that stands out? That's a great one. You know, certainly Good to Great is a, just kind of a, a gold standard that I think is out there. Being a child of the 80s, uh, you know, kind of the Jack Welch way, as much of a study today in some things not to do as it is in what we should do every day for business practices, because we have the luxury with particular uh, Jack Welch's book to now give it a 40 or 50, with 40 year test, right? And all of his advice that went into so many business owners and startups and stuff back in the 80s and 90s, how did that turn out? And there's some things I think that Jack Welch himself may want to do of look backwards and say, you know, in that particular environment, in that laboratory, that might have been right. But in today's world, you know, there's a different way. All right, next one. Thinking back on some of your managers in the past, and you don't have to name names, but if you think about maybe your favorite or favorite manager as an engineer, what made that person your favorite? What was a characteristic that stood out to you in in one of your favorite managers that you said, man, I really liked working for him or her because of that reason? Trust. They trusted me. You have to earn that in every case. You may have it, but you still have to earn it. I was very, very blessed. I've only had three jobs in the engineering world. And in both cases, small family-owned engineering firms, but owners were sole proprietor owners and really gave me a substantial amount of time. I was in on every Saturday. I was in on every Sunday and I would go knock on the door and say, hey man, I just made a pot of coffee. You want any? And sit down and ask the questions or, hey, what's going on? You want to go grab a beer? You know, And uh, one of my favorite quotes, Benjamin Franklin, don't trust a man you can't drink beer with, right? Those concepts to me and that trust, that willingness to share with me gave me the opportunity to at least uh, jump into what I described earlier in becoming an owner of a firm with at least enough of a head start to know in many cases, I learned from my managers some of what I didn't want to do and some of what I wanted to do. We almost, well, we do. It's an unwritten policy, but we have an anti-tie policy within the firm. And so coming out of the environment I described earlier with cigarette and cigar smoking and white shirts and ties thrown over your shoulder or, or worse, clipped onto the collar because they were dragging into the pencil dust and the ink and stuff, I don't adhere to that mentality anymore. So there's a lot of things in that, but I would definitely say trust. And, and I would encourage people as managers to find a way to truly trust the people working for them, because I think in that you will be disappointed. We are humans but you will also be pleasantly surprised more often than not. 
All right, I've got one final question here. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and you had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, Kevin, what would it be? Never assume you know everything. Always be open to learning. Constantly. Live in a classroom, live in a laboratory. If you can't look around you in this fishbowl we all live in, and understand that you are living experiment because we're, again, humans, we're, nobody's ever gotten it figured out. Nobody's ever been perfect. I don't care who they are, how much they created, how successful they are. They all still wanted to learn. So I love the education. I love the learning process and learn about learning. Don't just spend time learning how to be a civil engineer, learn how to be the best human, learn how to be the best entrepreneur, learn how other industries and other businesses operate so that you can apply that to this industry. We've got a long way to go within the civil engineering industry to catch up, to make up for what we saw in past generations of a little bit more strict. It was pretty hard to not look at young engineers uh, when I came up as a bit form of an indentured employee. So those hours and everything you put in back then make that difference. So keep trusting yourself and keep learning. I love Kevin's comment about learning too, because when I was an engineer, I used to get sent to the boot camp trainings. I got a binder and I never looked at it after that training again. And when I came to EMI, I started EMI and started building training programs. I said to our staff, I'm not building any training programs like that, where it's overwhelming, drinking from a fire hose, because you literally, it's a waste of the company's money and the person's time. But I had to think about the learning process, like you suggest. So Kevin Riggs, Coal Design Group, Inc., thank you so much for spending some time with us today in the Civil Engineering Podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much and best of luck to everybody out there. I'm on LinkedIn. Anybody out there looking to do this, uh, it's my duty to the industry to give it back. So if you have any questions, hit me up. I may not get back that second, but I try to respond to any of that. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin Riggs. He's a well-traveled individual in the world of civil engineering. He's a real entrepreneur and he's very connected to his people. And that is really what it will take to grow a civil engineering firm in 2021 and beyond. And as far as the meditation goes, I meant what I said in that interview. It's been a game changer for me. And I've talked to several engineering leaders that has really impacted their lives. And as I said, I use the Waking Up by Sam Harris app, which you can find in the App Store. And you can also check the show notes for this episode for some of the books around meditation that Kevin shared with me. And you can find those show notes by visiting civilengineeringentrepreneurs.com and look for the episode with Kevin Riggs. There you're going to find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. As I mentioned earlier in the show, if you're interested in people management training, project management training, or seller doer or business development training for you or your engineering team, check us out at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Just click on the training tab for more information on our programs. Or you can call us at 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.